Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I am delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2018 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference on aligning the promise of technology with the patient voice. The panelists are patient advocate Cindy Gagan, Dr. Dan Carlin, now with Health Mode, and Deanna Lennon with Medible. The 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference takes place on September 16th in Boston. We hope you enjoy this podcast. So I just keep sitting here, but Cindy and Deanna will now join me. So uh, switching gears a little bit here, the our next next theme. Am I good here? As we thought about about what we're doing here and and the sort of data, and this actually plays directly into Paul's point there at the end. So as we think about what mobile data, mobile in clinical trials bring us in terms of of data, there's always this this other side of it, which is, you know, there is this pressure in clinical trials, as there should be, to make sure that the participants are partners. And the question for this panel, and we'll let this go where it goes because I have great confidence in in you both, (laughs) once you introduce yourselves, to think about is the pressure to to really regard participants as participants in 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 a shared experience, in a shared process, is that pressure and this pressure that we're all part of here to include mobile are those antithetical? Are they compatible? Are there ways to make them more compatible? So we've got two perfect people to describe, to sort of ponder this with me up here. I'll let you both introduce yourselves and then we'll, we'll sort of dive in. So my name is Deanna Lennon. Uh, I'm a director of business development at Medible. Um, so I've been in this industry for about six years now, um, always on the technology vendor side. Um, I think a unique experience at Medible, because we're offering a platform for health, is that we can collect a lot of data from patients, from clinicians, from sites. Um, and the, the question really is, is what do we do with that after the fact? And um, it's one of the big questions I think we have today. Uh, so I think we can discuss that a bit. Hi, I'm Cindy Gagan, and I know a lot of you, and I spoke this morning, and I have been doing this for a very long time, this patient advocacy thing. I'm currently independent and part of City. I'm on their steering committee, but also one of the team leads on their mobile clinical trial project, and specifically the one that's looking at patient and site perspectives. Before I comment, I just wanted to apologize to Joe, Joe because I did not mean to call you out, but one of the points that I think kind of came from that is, you know, I'm going to use a we rather than an us and them because there's still a little bit of us and them and patient site, patient sponsored, patient everybody. Um, But it's important to collect a patient voice, but patients also hear. And so one of the things that I've learned from doing this for a long time and translating things for patients is you need to think about sitting in their seat, wearing their shoes, and the words you use, because you, we, you, we're asked to speak, probably as much as we need to, and then we also hear differently. So when you use certain words, including engagement, really, we might hear them a little bit different. So I did want to say that. The other thing to, to Dan's question is, 
There are a lot of things that technology can't fix that are barriers to patients participating in trials. We could talk about some of the things that can be facilitated or helped, but this isn't like Uber where you just kind of develop an app and a car shows up. This is different and these problems are big and some of the things we need to do for traditional trials we can apply to mobile and technology, but they're not necessarily going to be solved. Yeah, and actually, um, this is why I think we need more patient voices at conferences like this. Um, something that Medible has been trying to do is to work with advocacy groups to bring patients in during the design and the planning of a clinical trial because, you know, when we're talking about wearables and assessing scratch, you're asking somebody to wear two devices on both arms, maybe a leg, um, to understand if they're scratching in their sleep. Well, what does that actually mean for the patient for six months of their lives having to wear these? Are they subtle? Can you wear them underneath your clothes? Are you going to have to explain to somebody why you might have this big, bulky, plastic red device on your wrists? You know, these they're little things that maybe we don't think about because we just think, oh, this is the right device for this trial because it can collect the right data point that I'm looking for for my endpoint. But there's a person at the end of it who it could be a burden for them. And, and we need to understand that as we're developing the trial. Um, so that's where the partnership is going to be really important uh, between technology, pharma, and the patient side. I, I will say at this stage in this conversation, this, this one is meant to be with you all as well. So at any point, anyone can feel free, starting like now, to come up and, and contribute. One interesting uh, thing that Cindy has observed is that C Cindy wears the patient jersey, as it were, wears the patient uniform at these, but the patient experience is certainly not limited to folks who are willing to take that. I think it's a special kind of person who is willing to come up here and be in that role in this setting, but I, I'm not sure that the experience of patienthood or personhood in, in the, is unique. How do, we, how do we access the diversity of the patient voice, the folks who aren't like you and willing to do this. So I think you need to think about what the question is, because fortunately or unfortunately, I am the token patient in a lot of arenas that, frankly, I might not belong in, but I am willing and I am um, capable of bringing voices of, that I've heard. I mean, I've, I've manned hotlines, I've volunteered with patients that were being diagnosed, I sat with lots of peers. Um, so I kind of bring a collective voice, but part of it is, is you spoke to one patient, you spoke to one patient, you speak to one patient group, you've spoken to one patient group. I used to be part of some very large patient groups. A lot of them have a bias that is not that different than a sponsor's potentially or a regulatory. Um, so if you know what your question is, if you want to look at um, children, you need to kind of speak to parents or the kids themselves. You need to, if, you, if you're looking at a disease that is it's not represented by, you know, everybody that looks like us, you need to go into those communities and speak to those patients, and you need to do it often. You can't just start at the beginning, check the box, and go. You need to put the devices on. You need to ask representative people to wear them for a while and, and report back. It's not easy. This is not easy. 
That's why we haven't figured it out yet, the way, you know, others might have, like Uber. But um, it's a lot of work. And then the other part is the trust part with diversity representativeness. We need more people who look like the people that we want to reach. And that's something I've personally been working on as an advocate for over 20 years. It's a challenge. But we can't let this, this um, bringing in technology and everybody has an iPhone and everybody has a, you know, everybody understands, everybody has internet access. Maybe, but they don't apply it necessarily culturally the way we might. And so you can't just make statements like that and assume without going out and doing actual work with actual people. Cindy, so, yeah, I was just curious about your comment about technology not being able to solve every problem in the clinical trial process. <laughs> I think um, I think there are a lot of technology evangelists in the room, so I was curious if there are some, some thoughts about what aspects are, should we stay away from? So, so the things that I think we think they can solve is access, you know, convenience, um, making research participants more broadly available to people that might not live next door to an academic medical center. Um, but some of the problems were like, just like I cited the cultural issues with certain populations. Some people are sick. Like, they're sick in clinical research that they don't understand, like I said before, about the language and the vocabulary. Um, this just doesn't, they don't want to be sick anymore, so research isn't really an option. So a lot of the cultural issues we have, the technology can potentially make worse. They could provide some screen or um, comfort, but we need to make sure that we're still answering the questions that the patients need in asked or answered, and sharing with them and making them a partner. So technology doesn't do all of those things unless you train it or design it that way. Yeah, and that's actually going to be my point and, and question is surrounding the, the training and education. Um, so there's two pieces to that statement. There's for the site, um, you know, the clinicians there making sure that they're fully trained on the technology that's available for that study, um, for education for the patient, and also for caregivers. Um, so, and this is my question part, is uh, your experience with, or what is your experience with um, the caregiver aspect and technology? If, if you've seen a lot of that, and if you did, was there any point where it was successful, and if you didn't, you know, where do you think it could have been? So, so I'll give you a couple anecdotes. So I'm a breast cancer survivor, and what I learned in kindergarten as an advocate was in the breast cancer community. And a lot of older people, like maybe the way I am now, I was only in my 30s when I was diagnosed. But, but older people don't necessarily look to research, but you look at a caregiver, it would be the daughter, the son, the nephew, sometimes a grandson that would call and demand a clinical trial and how do I get access to it. So it kind of goes a little bit each way. And then the caregiver of a pediatric patient, right, is consenting and maybe driving that person. I think you raise a really good point that, that 
technology could really address, but maybe not directly in that trial, is getting the preference of that individual person. Because a lot of times people do what their kids want them to do, what their mother wants them to do. Um, I talked about city, and we surveyed potential research participants to get their perceptions of participating in trials, and they overwhelmingly selected the the mobile device enabled trial over the um, traditional trial because it was way fewer site visits. But we asked whether the influence of anybody else would, would or the perceptions of anybody else would um, interfere with their decision. And most said no, except for their primary care provider. So it didn't come out there, but I've seen it anecdotally. It's interesting. It sort of raises two two points to me. One is that we, we make assumptions like the burden of going to the site is so great that it reduces participation. But And I think if you survey people and say, oh, okay, well, here are the, you can ask this question in a very particular way, which is, you have to drive 20 minutes three times a week for six weeks to the site, or you can do it at home on your phone. And everyone will say, yeah, do it at home on the phone. But then if you take a population of sick folks, and, and I, this, you raised this on our call, and you say, oh, don't worry, you won't have to talk to any doctors during the course of this, and these are truly sick people. Maybe that clinical trial site isn't such a bad option after all, going and, and sitting with someone in their white coat who has some authority and is telling you we're doing the best we can for you. I mean, some of the traditional aspects is, that, this is a tricky one for me, wearing the hats that I wear as a, as a researcher, of course, it's all about minimizing placebo effect and measuring against it. And as a, as a treater, particularly in psychiatry, I, I've said this already today, but placebo is the best drug I've got. And I can, if I can boost drug response with a good, robust placebo effect, I got some, that's absolutely my goal. So it, it's this odd thing where we, where we say, it's almost like we're channeling our own interest by saying, oh, they'd rather do it by mobile. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I'm not sure we're, we're, we're able to weigh burden because we can put a number to how long the drive is and how many visits there are. It's a lot harder to weigh the value of having direct personal contact with somebody who seems to care about your, your well-being. Right, or somebody who you think has some sort of expertise to look at you and say you're okay. You know, you might be feeling crummy or something, but but especially for oncology patients, just those visits, while they're really stressful because they go either way, just seeing somebody who's looking at you and not potentially just your device data um, telling you you're okay, you could make it to the then you want to make it to the next visit. Because really sick people have a harder time getting there, you know, parking, driving, you know, taking the elevators and all those things. But it means something to them. And that's back to the asking individual preference. And I, I have that, like, as my, we're going we're gonna to wrap up because there's a huge thing around preference, around individuality, I think, implicit in this. David, did you have a point? Yeah, my question is pretty much basically what you're talking about, and I don't know if you're kind of answering it in, in, uh, as I'm standing here, but it seems to me the benefit of technology to scale things is to be individualized and personalized like what WellTalk is doing for health insurance with personalizing messages for health insurance companies based on your preferences, right? And so what I was going to ask to Cindy, because you're up there representing patients, is what are the top three things that patients would like to see better in trials or in healthcare in general? But now we're talking about, well, top three things don't matter based on subsets of the population and everything has to be personalized. So my question is, if we could do three things better for the patient, what would it be? But then the next question is, if we had technology to personalize it, who's going to pay for that and who 
which pharma is willing to like try that, or are they already doing it? That's an easy one. No, it's not. So basically, they're they're very individual things, and a lot of patients don't want to be bothered. They don't want information. They don't want to know. Um, if they're Maybe not the majority, but there's a lot more of them out there than you think. And so when you kind of look on social media, you're getting the people who express and who care and who are engageable, maybe. But there's a whole, that's like the tip of the iceberg. Okay. So, but the other piece is, is support and information. We all want to know what's happening with us. We might want to hear it differently. But there's that, that need-based thing, I think, that clinical trials are always like this black box. And then the other part is make it understandable to me. Like, make, tell me why you can't share data. So the other part is came over even more overwhelmingly than people selected the mobile trial over the traditional trial across therapeutic areas was they want to see their data, 98% of them, like in almost real time. Because it came up, I think, a couple sessions ago, you're used to wearing you know, oh, I'm going to get a monitor, and I'm going to be able to see it, and it's going to, like, be as fancy as an Apple Watch, and I'm going to be able to understand it, and I'm going to be able to look at it. Those expectations come. Now, if you can't share, we might be able to understand that, and but you have to tell us and explain why. It's like somebody, <laughs> somebody defined an advocate to me once as a relentless six-year-old. You just keep asking why. So if you... And so that's sort of what I'm doing here, is why are you doing it this way? Can you do it better? Why? And then maybe we'll say yes instead of no, or mine. In trying to, and, and you know, obviously Cindy, Cindy, Cindy has a certain gravity that, that makes her very able to, to address these issues. But I do wonder from the perspective of, of the medical attempt to platformize trial functions in a way that they're accessible to people anywhere on their mobile phone. How, how do you all think about these these issues of individual? I mean, are you able to think about the sort of patient role in all this? Or do you, are you a little bit stuck having to sell to the sponsor? Uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> um, so I think from actually being able to deliver uh, an individualized experience isn't so much the problem. Um, you know, there is a lot of setup and customization that would be required in order to do so, but I do believe that it's very valuable for us to at least offer that. But then I have to say, yeah, there is a large barrier when we're talking, especially myself, when I'm talking to pharma companies that are like, hmm, I'd like to go with a brick-and-mortar traditional type of clinical trial. I know that it works, especially if we're talking interventional. Um, you know, registry study, there's a little more flexibility there um, where maybe a hybrid or a full direct-to-patient model can be used or is talked about. Um, so I think when we're talking in, uh, interventional phase two, three studies, there needs to be more conversations with technology companies, with sponsors, and with patients to better understand how can we actually use this big data because we can collect millions of data points I mean, that's not the problem. It's now how do we give that back to the patient? How do we protect the integrity of the clinical trial and make sure that we meet our endpoint and we're not 
accidentally unblinding anyone. You know, these are a lot of conversations that we're having. Um, and, you know, we want to have those conversations. And no one has the right answer. Um, I, I especially don't have the right answer for this. But, you know, we need to at least have a forum that we can talk about this and in some meetings to talk about the innovation, you know, what's possible within the bounds of what we're acceptably or can have acceptable risk. Um, I think any trial that's going to be direct to patient or even hybrid, there has to be an acceptance of that risk in that study. But we really just need to start getting there. It's funny how from certain angles, stakeholders who would probably not say they were on the same side of an issue appear to be. So we're talking about, say, you know, global clinical leads at a pharma company and their regulator. And to you guys, you're saying, well, those are, they're, they're singing the same song. They, they occupy the same space, and both of them are blocking a certain sort of progression. And each would probably blame the other. But, but I guess this is really, to me, where the alignment issue came up. If we're, if we're on the one hand saying, here are the things we should do because technology enables them, and then over here we're making an argument, well, here are the things we need to do because patients are asking for it, what are the areas where we can really narrow the focus and say, here are the things we need to do because patients are asking for it and we have the technology to enable it? Are, are there points like that that, that, we could, that we could split the GCLs and the, and the regulator? I think, you know, the regulatory part might be a little bit, there are things that patients need outside. So um, I think it was Michelle this morning mentioned that the patient's life didn't change just because they entered the trial. So, you know, health, the healthcare situation in this country, I'm not going to get into right now, but, but the patients have needs, and one of them is support. Like, um, am I supposed to, like, have an itchy third finger by taking it? You know, it, it's not going to affect the, the trial outcome, so to speak, but what can I expect? You know what the n number one thing, and this is anecdotal, it's never been published, but the number one effective thing for recruiting patients is have them talk to a patient because you can ask the dumb questions, you can say what you don't understand, you can say, no, your hair isn't going to light on fire, you know? You can, you can talk to them from where they're coming from. And in that case, you don't necessarily have to look exactly like them. It could happen over a telephone. But it's just like that support and education information. I think that can be provided, and that's a human need, I think. Yeah, and, and the technology side can support that. So... Now, this is the regulatory conversation. Um, okay, can we use chatbots in a mobile app supporting this clinical trial? What happens to that data? Is there an audit trail behind that? What if I'm asking a question that I don't necessarily want to be on my record here? Um, you know, so I think this is where we just need to go to the regulatory agencies, ask the questions. Um, you know, Kelly, I think that was a great presentation you gave, I don't know where you are, but <laughs> gave a great presentation earlier of the questions that at least you've asked to the FDA. You got answers, may not have been very clear, but, you know, it's at least starting starting the conversation, and, and that's really, I think, what, what we need to do because, frankly, technology is doing this in other industries. Um, we talked about Uber, but, you know, this is... We're, we're behind. We're behind on, from financial. We're behind in social media aspects. You know, 
a very, very large industry, and we should be able to leverage the technologies available that others can. Sure. Hi, I'd like to tie back sort of some of the earlier concepts from the last discussion, right? This notion of silver bullets and the Pittsburgh sleep scale, which I had to look up, I'm not an expert in it. But that scale was invented in 1988 by folks from the University of Pittsburgh. Right? Well, it's the same one. Anyway, there is a Pittsburgh one that's... Yeah. That's, so there's nothing the stopping one. you guys from NYU to develop something in conjunction with patients and technology to just put that scale out of business, right? Yeah, so the point I was going to make about that, that's really well. Uh, we see this all the time. Do the mic. Or you can just come talk into my shirt color. Joe, that's a great question. Um, the Pittsburgh Sleep Scale is owned by the University of Pittsburgh. They imagine that someday they'll do a digital deploy of it. So they will only license it for use as a paper scale. This happens all the time. We said, we'll pay you. They said, forget it. We're going to make our own. We said, we'll pay you on a per-use basis. They said, no, no, we're going to make our own. You can't have it. No way. There are a lot of scales that are like this. Or we have a web version, and we hope to make it. And so there's this huge barrier. And so what companies like us do is we have something called the D3 sleep scale. And the difference, bluntly, between Pittsburgh and the D3 is that Pittsburgh asks about your monthly sleep, and we ask about your biweekly sleep, and just enough other stuff to make it separate, but they correlate at 0.98. So that's what people do. They, so they do exactly what you say. They make a new scale. They collaborate with patients. They work on making a scale that's validated and make new tools. That happens all the time. So what I'm saying is, why bother with this, the Pittsburgh one. In 1986, what did we use? Right, there was no Pittsburgh. Right, so well, let's, okay. Let's but so, so the answer is people, because every sponsor, every sponsor shows up with the person who runs their study, and they say, "I've been doing this for 25 years, and I need this scale." And you say, "Well, there are three other scales." They say, "Okay, I love, this is my second choice scale, and this is my third choice scale." And you say, "I can work with patients to develop a totally new scale, and we can validate it." And they say, I'm not interested in that. You don't need our permission. Pittsburgh, those guys in Pittsburgh didn't get our permission. Just do it. But for, yeah, but, for but whom? Who am I going to sell it to? Who's going to pay for it? Well, why did the guys in Pittsburgh do it? Because they were an academic research center. They made it up from scratch. <laughs> okay, so in my academic life, we do stuff like that, but D3 has to make money. See, but, <laughs> but I think, see, but you actually shouldn't have made that last statement. Because what I was just going to say was, has anybody ever tried to go to a patient group and get the registry data? It's not, we could all wear black hats here. I mean, we really can. It's not easy, and even as another patient group. I mean, we just kind of generate things and we say it's ours and we view it as something potentially with some value to make money some, at some point because that's the way we operate. I think culturally we need to kind of, and I think technology can do some of this, take it away from certain people. It's not because they're bad, it's just... It's America, and it's America now, you know, where everybody, everybody makes money. And this, I mean, this gets into a sort of a business model question, which Medible has come up with a slightly different answer to the business model question. Well, so, okay, I, I said to myself I wasn't going to do the shameless plug for Medible while I was up here. You're literally but sitting in front I, I know. of the table sign. It's, it's um, no, but when you're talking about, you know, a patient registry to – have this and potentially create digital biomarkers. That is an active initiative that we are working on. Uh, we have access to over or about half a million um, patients through different academic research centers across different therapeutic areas. And 
these are the discussions that we're having is, okay, what data can we collect outside of the sense of a clinical trial? Um, who will want to consent into that? Because obviously that requires its own consent because there's different types of data points that we're collecting there. Um, and then what do we do with that after the fact, right? Okay, we have all of this data, we have all of these patient lives information. Um, okay, do we license that out to pharma companies and say, okay, we can match someone to your clinical trial, or is it more so from the patient advocacy side? So Back to the individual question. You yep. ask the individual patient, because if you assume, and again, I, I don't mean to demean my, my people, but if you assume a patient group always has all of the patients that answered all 300 questions twice a year, you you try to get the data back. So it's not, just because it's a patient group doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But if you ask the person, and the person can have access to the data, take it back if they want. That's the way to do it. Have we thought about taking um, the example from 23andMe, where, you know, basically they collect all of that data, so they actually got their hands slapped pretty hard by the FDA. But, you know, originally you could get your full health report from your genetics, et cetera. You paid for it, moved on, you got that. FDA said no more health, but now they've come back and actually said you can at least get some generalized information based on that. And you still fill out the forms from the patient point of view. You get some basic information. But it's put in the information, so you're taking kind of the patient, and then you're also collecting the data and being able to share it and opt in and opt out at various points. And then 23andMe sold it. Yep. But so that's but the that's, other piece that's not coming up here is the trust no, and relationships great. part. But I mean, there's some, there's some at least some learnings from that I think we can take within this field versus trying to reinvent the wheel, take to see what's worked and what hasn't from other situations, and maybe try and apply that in this digital area. Just something to think about. So I might offer, and maybe we can think about, something I mentioned earlier was that the, the field of digital measurement, the idea of these, these digital contrails that we leave behind us that, that contain data and may or may not contain information depending on what the source is, uh, start to betray or reveal, depending on your perspective, the complexity of our lives. And obviously, uh, this is a core historical conflict in medical informatics, which is data reusability versus readability, essentially. You know, can you take, in my field, something which has taken the entirety of, I would say, the entirety of human literature to attempt to describe, which is our internal mental states, and consolidate it down to some checkboxes? Well, not without losing something. And, and there's this constant tension between what do you... Can, what, what richness do you need versus what reusability do you want in the data, right? And this, that, that's old informatics. In this new world of, of data collection, we start to reveal complexities that we're not sure what to do with. We sort of all admit that there are things we know what to do with and things we don't know what to do with. And I wonder how we think about the alignment there with the need for clinical trials to flatten out individual differences, right? A big point of clinical trials is to not treat you as an individual, it's to treat you as a placebo group or a or an intervention group, an active group, and to say, oh, we're going to do everything we can to eliminate all the other individual differences, which of course feels not great. And it, it is in direct sort of contravention with this sense of the patient as an individual who has preferences and desires and, and a complex experience of the intervention or the non-intervention or the clinic visit or the mobile app. Might there be 
might the alignment lie somewhere in there that that the ability to measure this complexity allows us to, to include it rather than exclude it and to consider the patient as an individual without the need to necessarily flatten a group of patients to a group. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it seems like the kind of thing that, that the technologists and the individuals who are paying attention could get behind. You can just say, you can just say no. Uh, and no, no, no it, it, it's a really good question, and I'm guessing it's not that... Well, it's very complicated. I think what we're moving, maybe not even the individual, but earlier today we were talking about standard of care and, and, and drinking the Kool-Aid, and it's like we stick with stuff because it worked. And so we could probably do it. We could flatten for some therapeutic areas in 2022, but we can't stay with it by 2060, because I can tell you trials I participated in 20 years ago, like I would never even consider now, um, and I don't know where that data is. So I think part of it is is you just, we, we I think you, yes, is the answer. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Do, do either of you or both of you want to make a, a little closing statement here as we run out of time just to get your message out there? Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, first off, conferences like this are great. I mean, we need to be having these conversations. Um, I, I think personally we should have more patients in the room um, because at the end of the day, that's who all of our customers are. It's, it's the patient. It's to be able to deliver a better uh, therapeutic agent for that particular person and their people at the end of the day, right? So we have to keep that in mind. Um, so I think, you know, just working together, partnering, you know, there's a few different technology vendors in the room. It's okay for us to work together. <laughs> you know, we can share best thoughts and practices and, and really be able to drive innovation in this industry. And I'm going to quote from the book of Yoda. <laughs> Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. And I was going to try to do the voice, but I can't. So, so but I think what keeps us back is fear and risk. Um, that's what keeps patients from participating in research. So if you just let go of the fear part and work together, as Deanna said, and I think, you know, I think we can do something. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the 2018 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference. The 2019 Mobile and Clinical Trials Conference takes place September 16th in Boston. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. And for getting to the end of this podcast, take advantage of a 10% discount with code MRADIO. Again, that's a 10% discount with code MRADIO, and the website is theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.